Thank you for being here. We are in Jude. Again, looking at uh, verses 5 through 7, you're going to have three examples uh, of what is the fate of the apostates, of those that Jude is writing about. He's warning uh, the, the certain men. He calls them just certain men, doesn't identify them. He's going to identify their character, but they've come in secretly, snuck in, in such a way that it, not necessarily that they're incognito, but they've joined the group of the believers, and they're not believers themselves. Uh, they've come in maybe with ulterior motives, but they've come in, and the people are starting to follow them. Uh, I, I would assume they're taking positions of leadership, or at least they're doing some kind of teaching. And they've come in, and uh, Ju- Jude is going to tell the people, you need to, one, contend for the faith. Uh, because these apostates are starting to change the faith. And if you lose the faith, it was once for all entrusted to the saints. If you lose the faith, there's not like another faith. There's not like another truth. And he's going to now say uh, the fate of them has been, as we have saw last couple weeks, it was uh, pre-written. It was written beforehand. Apographo, which means before and written, uh, meaning their fate, is is sealed it it's it's a, a truth uh it's a reality you you behave this way this is the result it's like uh it's like reality uh, it, it's it's like if you plant a certain seed a certain crop grows if you behave a certain way you get a certain fate uh you can't separate he's going to call them dreamers here in a, in a couple of weeks we'll get to that but it's almost like he's calling them woke in the sense, not, you know, they're dreaming, but they're woke. It's like they've, they've set their dreamers. They're creating their own reality. And it's like, that's not going to work. They, they've changed certain things that they think. But the, the, what was written long ago, the uh, apographo, the what was written before, is not going to change. Their fate is the same. He's going to give three examples uh, of things, people, beings, situations that have done the same thing uh, and their fate is sealed. You, they should be able to see it. And so he's going to be pointing this out to them. Uh, the first thing I've got written on page one is a text blot box there. Uh, I just write Jude's denunciation of these heretics throughout his book shows how these apostates and their ultimate fate were written about beforehand, pro grafo. Uh, uh, this is an age-old principle. These apostates cannot escape reality. They perish in the end every time. That's what it means it was written before. It's not that they were, they were selected, predestined, you're going to perish. It's this behavior always ends up here in judgment. And what I've got there in that text box, uh, which is interesting, and we're going to read through it real quick, is the grafo or the written part, the part that is written, the text that was written beforehand, uh, Jude is going to refer in verses 5 through 8, we'll refer to that today, Uh, he's going to talk about the exodus, he's going to talk about the angels, and he's going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Three accounts, three stories that are written down before these apostates even take action, this is where your fate is going. That's verses 5 through 8. So in a sense, the entire book is... Jude talking about what was written beforehand. You need to contend for the faith. These apostates are, their fate is sealed. 
and it was written along uh, beforehand, uh, 9 through 10. Uh, it talks about, the, it's Jewish writings, and this is where we're going to, you know, again, it's not Scripture, but Jude is referring to it to his Jewish crowd. And the very fact he's referring to these Jewish scriptures, remember when we, we started the book, we talk about when it was written and who he was writing to. Uh, we're not sure. He doesn't address them. But the very fact that he's quoting and referring and referencing Jewish writings that's outside the text of Scripture, outside the text of Jewish Scripture, outside the text of uh, Christian church Scripture, but yet still historical information for the Jews would indicate that he's writing to Jewish Christians, probably in Israel, Jerusalem, maybe Syria, maybe Egypt, but they're probably Jewish Christians. And he's going to write to their, uh, he's going to write about the fate of the devil, and he's going to refer to Enoch. Now, he's going to refer to Enoch a couple of times, just not saying it, or he maybe we'll, we'll refer to a story, maybe mention Enoch's name, but we'll eventually quote Enoch, uh, which again would be the part of that Jewish writing. It's not, it's not what we'd call scripture, but it does give us insight. It puts flesh on the bone. We'll look at Genesis 6 today, and there is, when we get into there, it talks about the sons of God going to the daughters of men and, and marrying any that they chose and producing the Nephilim. And it's like, okay, there's some names, some references, but who are they? You can go ahead and be like outside and looking around making stuff up, or you can just dive into what did the people of 55 AD think about those verses. And it's like, well, that's what they think, but here's what we think in our modern age. Well, you can do that, but you better be careful because when Jude is writing to these, what we are going to assume are Jewish Christians around 55 AD, what are they hearing him say? Because he's not going to say, well, here's what I'm going to say, but I'm sure they're going to misunderstand it and make a misapplication. So whatever he writes, we can find out or at least assume what they heard, and that will give us, in a sense, a correct interpretation of what Jude is referring to, these angels who sin. And then you come on in the modern age and say, well, here's what we think, and then you're, you're going to combine your secular philosophy, your humanistic worldview, and then you're going to interpret these verses and say, well, that's really strange. Well, you're 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years away from the fact, interpreting it in your academia, and all you've got to do is go down and read Jude's quote of Enoch and his explanation that these angels are now perishing because they sinned, when, where, how? Well, what did the people of 55 AD, if they're Jewish, receiving a letter from a Jew, what would they think? They would think like we think in 2023? No, they can't. They're going to have to hear it the way, and that's the proper way of interpreting Scripture, is how did the readers understand it? Because, it, again, it's, it's true. The Bible is written to you. God is writing a love letter to you. Okay, that's true, the concept. He's communicating to you. But when you get into the text, no, he's not. He's writing to Jewish believers in 55 AD. You're reading a letter that Jude sent 
to believers in the first century. It wasn't written to you. You're not free to interpret it the way you think. It can speak to you. It can lead you. These words are life. They're living. But their meaning, it was what was first, what was first in given to what you uh that what was originally given to the church, the, the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. What was entrusted to them has been handed down, and you've got to receive what was handed down. You can't go, oh, well, that really doesn't make any sense. What we think today is, well, now you're an apostate. You've just joined the apostates, and you're reinterpreting the Scripture to match your worldview. So, yes, the Bible is a love letter to you, in the sense that God is communicating the love of Christ, his compassion, his desire, his character to you, and giving you an offer of salvation. But if you interpret it in the context of your society, you're going to miss the word of God that is being recorded in Scripture and come up with some humanistic philosophy that's going to put you right here in this line of judgment that it's a fate that has been set. Well, anyway, verses 9 through 10 is going to be a Jewish text because we're referring to that was written about long ago, Exodus and Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels, Jewish text. And then in verses 11 through 13, he's going to be referring to, ah, three, uh, here you got Cain, you got Balaam, and you've got Korah. So again, you're going back to Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers, things that are written about. He's, he's, I mean, he's just, he's using Exodus, Genesis, Genesis, some Jewish references, including Enoch, that he's not going to separate from. You, you've got to embrace the book of Enoch at some level here, because the, Jude is. Uh, then Cain from Genesis, Balaam from Numbers, and Korah from Numbers. He's re- giving those examples. And then in verses 14 through 16, he's going to refer again to the same thing as before, the Jewish writings. And then in verses 17 to 19, He's going to begin, and you can see it right there if, if, you, you, can, if you look at it. Verse 17. Uh, but dear friends, remember that the apostles of our Lord Christ before, uh, what he, they said before, what the apostles said before. And so this now is the apostles. So what he's going to do, what was written, pro, written beforehand, pro-grafo, written beforehand, their fate, Chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. The whole book is him defending that statement. The fate of these apostates was written before and not written as in predestined condemning this person and this person and this person, but written, you act this way, this is your fate. It was written beforehand. Where is it written beforehand? Exodus, Genesis, Genesis the Jewish text, talking about the devil's fate, Enoch, Cain in Genesis, ba- Balaam, Korah in Numbers, and then the Jewish writings again, and he quotes from Enoch that time, and then finally says, the apostles told you this. And he ends his letter. The whole thing is just right there, written text that these men's fate is sealed, and they can't escape reality. And once again, he refers to them as, in a couple verses, dreamers, in the sense that they are creating their own reality. They're creating their own doctrine, replacing the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. They're creating their own. They're, in a sense, the woke. They're coming in. They're changing the grace of Christ into a license to sin. Oh, look, this is great. And they're changing it. 
we would call them the woke. And it's like, no, your fate is sealed. You go dreamer in Jude or woke in our culture, your fate is sealed. And that's at the top of the page right there, that text box right there. Um, and Jude's purpose for writing is, uh, one, he encouraged them right out of the box. You've got to contend for the faith. And remember, that contend is a word that comes from the, the athletic arena of competition. You're going to, in a wrestling match, you're fighting, you're contending for the truth. You're, you're not just like, well, we'll just see what happens. We want to be patient. You're, you're, you're fighting because people are, Satan is trying to undermine and confuse the truth. You're gonna, you've re, once and for all received it. Now that you've got it, you're going to have to fight to hang on to it. Just imagine your life. Think of all the things you've been through. The Word of God was there in the beginning. You had a Bible. You had your Sunday school, your church experience. And now you've gone, you're just like, it was just easy. I just read the Bible and everyone just agreed and we just moved along. It's like every step of the way, someone's been trying to redirect you if it be in public school, if it be in some secular church, if it be in the media, Hollywood, they're, they're trying to redirect you. You're going to have to every step of the way fight for this truth. And he says that, so that's part of the letter. Is you guys got to contend for this. You've got people that have come into your group that are changing the grace of God in a license to sin. We've got grace. God loves us. We can sin. It doesn't matter. It's like, no, that's not the truth. You've got to contend for the faith. Now, faith is those things, uh, the faith is those things that are the basic doctrines. Again, we're not going to, we could go on theology here. But just some simple things, uh, and I'm going to pull these off the top of my head, so they may, may not be simple. Me, well, that's contestable. But think about the sinfulness uh, of man. Man is sinful. Man is corrupt. Man is falling. I mean, falling, fallen. Uh, man has died. Man is born with a sin nature. He needs redemption. He needs salvation. There's nothing he can do to help himself. Man needs, he needs grace. He needs Jesus. Uh, there's going to have to be a sacrifice. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head right from the garden. I mean, this is right from the beginning. Okay, you're sinful, dying, you're going to die. Uh, we're going to have to send you a savior. The seed of the woman going to crush the serpent's head, but he is going to himself uh, be bruised, be wounded, and the story continues. And now we come, now that, you're, you have this opportunity of grace, you're going to have to have faith. In this sense right here, the active, you're going to have to have faith. You're going to have to trust this message of Jesus Christ. And once you've been saved, you've, been, you've accepted the grace that's redeemed you from this sinfulness, you now are going to have to, we'll just say, walk the walk. You're going to have to have fellowship with God. You're going to have to pursue the light walk in light you're going to have to grow you're coming out of this sinful state you're going to have to begin growing in the grace growing in the grace that was you've been given grace so now what do you do you grow in this grace and it's going to grow in your fellowship with god the father that's some basic doctrine right there i would say imagine just imagine today can you see a church can you see an apostate church today that would change this right here uh, faith in the gospel you can see something right there just becoming very very 
uh, well, we just got to do good things. We need to do good things. If you're a good person, you're a good citizen, uh, you care about other people. We've just changed salvation into goodness. Again, we've seen that before. Sinfulness. Oh, well, we all make mistakes, but God understands that. Sinfulness. God is, uh, I'm spelling some words here, accepting. Oh, good. I hope that's close. God is accepting all, you know. Who can be, don't be so judgmental. We don't want to call man sinful. That's negative. Who's going to want to be called a sinner? We just want you to do good. Well, if you're doing good and accepting, Jesus, he came, he came as an example. And as an example, what he show, what did he show? He ate and drank with sinners. I mean, the, the, the whole theme of Jesus' ministry is stop being judgmental. Let's just get along. Let's just, you know, have a little Woodstock party here. Get along and stop oh, the religion. Especially, stop the religion. Just get along and be an example. And Jesus just accept people as they are. And basically, love. Love. The Beatles nailed it, you know. Uh, and then redeemed. I don't even understand what that means. And walk in fellowship, that just means, you know, uh, tolerant. Just be tolerant there. Now, if we're going to have, if we're a, a, a board that's going to get together, we're going to start a church and reach our community, this is what we would want to aim for. First of all, our flyers, we are accepting of all. And then we'd have like a rainbow tattooed colored type thing on there. And uh, with a white guy. So it's like, yeah. And then uh, love, we would, we would say something about loving all, and it's a place of, of, of acceptance and comfort, and that we are good. We are serving, serving. Yes, we are here to serve you. We, we, we that accept all are here for you. If you have a question, if you have a problem, we, we want to help you. We can help each other. We can overcome. In fact, there's a biblical example of everyone coming together and over the Tower of Babel. Yes, we can all come together and serve. And, uh, and of course, if you're going to come in here with any kind of judgment, evaluation, like this kind of stuff, bringing this kind of stuff in here, not being intolerant of everyone, we have no room for this right here. In fact, we do not want Bibles, crosses in this community setting. This is the church we are building. Do you understand? Apostates have slipped in among you. Have you can you imagine a church like that ever appearing in our culture? What's going to be hard to do is imagine a church surviving without doing this in the culture. Okay, page one, Jude's purpose is to contend for the faith. That's right there. You're going to have to contend for the faith. Otherwise, that's where you're going, that's where you're going to end up. Uh, keep yourself in God's love because you're being surrounded by these apostates that are changing the grace of God into a license for sin. You're going to have to keep yourself in God's love. You're saved but keep growing in that. And then, it, really, he doesn't come out as I don't want to, how do you say it? He doesn't come out as condemning and, and these people deserve to go to hell. He comes out with, at the end, three steps of, 
of how to rescue these people. You know, some are going to have to snatch like fire brands from the, the fire. Some are going to have to warn. Uh, but you've got to help these people. I mean, the apostates are the apostates, but not everyone is going this way. Some are just misled sheep. So there is a sense of, uh, of, of concern. It's just like, you know, y'all can just go to hell. He's like, what are we going to do to help these people? And that comes out at the end of the book. Okay, uh, with what was said there at, at verses 5 through 19, I'm going to read verses 5 through 19, and I want you to hear the Bible stories, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Genesis, the references to the Jewish writings in verses 9 to 10, and then, of course, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, Genesis and Numbers again, verses 14 to 16, the Jewish writings, and then verses 17 through 19, he's going to refer to the apostles uh, that they've already said. So here we go. Verses 5 through 19, just hear him begin this. Uh, again, obviously, I'm going to start in chapter, or not chapter, but I'm going to start in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Why? Because certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly, stealthily slept it, slipped in among you. And now he describes them. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign. So that is describing them. So this is who they are. You've got to contend for the faith. There's groups that have come in. They're ungodly. They're changing the grace into reasons to sin, and they're denying the, de- the Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, there's two words. We went over that before. Uh, deny Jesus Christ our sovereign and Lord. One is sovereign in the sense that he is the lawgiver and the judge, and the other is he is the owner. He owns the property. So he is the law and the government. He, is, he controls all, and he makes the law. I mean, there's no, you can't escape. They're denying his reality. Once again, he's going to call them dreamers. It's like, you have not embraced the, the reality of the lawgiver and the owner, the creator of all? No, we don't recognize that. Oh, you're a dreamer. You, you've got one rude awakening coming, dreamer. And then you wake up and become woke. Um, deny the sovereign Lord. Okay, though you have already know all this, I want to remind you, and we'll refer to that again, that the Lord... And he, now he begins going through this list. The Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound in everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now, you understand that verse right there, that is, that is I don't want to say sketchy, that's just a skeleton, that's just an outline. It's like, what, what angels? Where are they? What are you talking about? Which means, I don't, I don't understand this verse, but Jude is writing to people who are like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, amen, mm-hmm. When he says the angels who left their proper place, they're kept in darkness, locked up, you know, mm-hmm, they know the story. So it's like, well, we need to go back in 55 AD and find what did these Jewish Christians think when J- Jude says this? They didn't think, that they were Sunday school boys who went to uh, the, the, the naughty girls and then produced the giants of old. It's like, they didn't think, that, that's a Sunday school teacher coming up with that answer when he can't explain, uh, I don't know, the aliens came and impregnated people. 
I, I don't know. That just the good boy shouldn't date the naughty girls. Just don't do that. Okay. So, I mean, you don't have room to do that because we can fix that. Okay, verse uh, 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves into sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So, one, two, three, that's the first text. Now we go to the next level. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies reject authority and slander celestial beings so that's what they're saying there's your example they're doing the exact same thing that the exodus generation the angels sodom and gomorrah they're doing the same thing and now he goes into the jewish writings but even the archangel michael now this is not in your bibles you got a you got a place for it once again you've got a spot holder you've got a reference but you just don't have the flesh of the story you got god buried moses Okay, and then we move on with the story. But there's some flesh here in the story, in the Jewish writings, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but says, the Lord rebuke you. So again, there's a story that kind of puts some meat on the bones, if you would. God buried Moses' body. He hid Moses' body. No one knows where it was buried. But now we see the archangel Michael was there saying, Satan, don't mess with this. But Satan somehow wanted the body of Moses. Now, what did he want to do with it? Did he, I mean, maybe he just want to turn it into some kind of a, a pagan worship site. Or, we don't know the details. But nonetheless, there's, again, the Bible gives like a spot marker to it. And then as history is recorded, there's more details that you can find. Similar to, like we were talking about last week, about... Uh, the table of nations they get off the ark and then here you go here's all these people that went to all these places it's like well that's a boring chapter right those are just spot holders you're supposed to go to those cultures and read about their history and now you're going to find out oh these people were the legends of their culture and there's all kinds of stories about you know going from gilgamesh all the way through it's like these are spot holders and they all trace back to the great hero noah who was like the king of the world. But we don't want to regress there. Uh, yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the, now here's your three examples, the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. And each of those three things, one, two, three, it's not, those are not just references. That's what these people are doing. Uh, they're rushing for profit. They're trying to make money. Korah's rebellion, they're overthrowing the proper authority. And they're, uh, uh, the way of Cain, they're going to go ahead and they reject God's way, uh, 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 oppress God's people, and take over. These men are blemishes at your love feast. And this is the, this is the sad thing, the embarrassing thing. These men are blemishes at your love feast. The question would be, what are they doing at your festivals? I mean, you're supposed to be contending for the faith, and these people are celebrating the feasts with you. It's like they should have been driven out. Well, we don't want to be like that. That's not very Christ-like. It's like, these, these have no place for you. Look what God's going to do to them. And you're like, well, we don't want to be offensive. These men are blemishes in your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. 
They are clouds without rain, blown along by wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Now we go back to the Jewish writings. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. They're networking in your churches is what they're doing. They're flattering others for your own advantage and boasting about what they could do. Verse 17, now we go to the last section. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. And we can go back and see what uh, uh, Paul has written up until, if, if this is 55 AD, you've got certain things that, that Paul has written, you've got uh, Matthew being written, uh, and, and they foretold these things. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. Now, then he closed the book with encouraging words, and we'll go on with that. Save the encouraging words for another day. All right, so page one of your notes again, please. We're looking at 5, 6, 7. Verse 5 is the Exodus example. Verse 6 is the angel example. Verse 7 is Sodom and Gomorrah. Hopefully we'll get through 5 and 6. And we read chapter, or page 1, Jude 5. This is now the English Standard Version. I was reading NIV. This is English Standard with the Greek text below it. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. That is a very unchristian verse right there. Jesus, who saved the people afterward, destroyed those who didn't believe. He saved them. I want you all to come here and accept by faith all the good things that God is doing for you. Oh, you don't believe? Destroyed, destroyed, destroyed. It's like, what? That's not very Jesus-like. Okay, and that's going to come up here. Okay, uh, point one, I want to remind you. This is a formula that is used in many places. You can see it in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Paul uses it. Uh, and what's impressive there is he says, I want to remind you, and this really, like, this sums up, uh, uh, I guess, one phase, one facet of the ministry of the church. I want to remind you, although you already know. We've already heard this. Right, there's only one copy. There's only one Bible. It's like, well, we want some new stuff. Uh, well, okay, you got it all, you know everything? Okay, well, let's go back and remind you because you're being constantly bombarded with the secular world. It's like if you're not, con- I know that, I know that. Not, I, listen, I think this. I already read the Bible, I, I know this. But if I will take time and go back and read it, it's like, oh, I know it. But every time I'm reminded, it moves me closer. Or, Again, you've experienced this too. You hear it again, and now with all the understanding you've gained from having read everything else, you hear it again for the first time, and you know, understand a little bit more of insight. But the idea is this is cyclical. This is, we teach it, now you know it, and we remind it, you learn it, we come back, we remind, we just, you just, this is church. This, this is the ministry of the church. Feed the sheep. 
They are, they're not even hungry. They already know everything. It's like, if that were the case, let's say you're in some intense academic reform culture that they're just like Bible, 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 and you've heard everything, you know the Hebrew, you know the Greek. Okay, I would be very intimidated to come in there and try and remind you of anything because it's like, you ought to be teaching me. I'll just take notes from what you know. If you're in that kind of a culture, but I don't think we're in that culture in America in 2023 that we're even, listen, in fact, my experience, my limited experience, very rarely am I reminding people of Scripture. Most of the time, I'm like, they're like, what? I never knew that. Why have I never heard that? I've been a Christian my whole life. I never knew that. And I'm not reminding, remember? It's like, no. I've never had the book of Song of Songs taught to me. I've never had the book of Matthew read to me. It's like, I just know the Christmas story. Really, if you venture away from the Christmas story and Easter, you're no longer reminding Christians in the 20, 20th century of anything. You're teaching them raw meat. Like, it's like, holy smokes, we've never heard this. I mean, they maybe know John 3.16, but go ahead, read John 3.17 and just shake their world. You already stand condemned. What? They already stand condemned? I never knew that. Right, because you never read the next verse. Okay, but James is, or Jude is not talking to us. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. Now, that doesn't mean they, they knew it and forgot it. That's the idea that they once, it's been instructed, you, you, we've covered this, but we're going to remind you because now some time for some application. And what he's going to tell them, uh, well, read, stay with my notes. Point three, uh, I don't have a point two. The, I maybe did and got deleted, I'm not sure. Probably the most important point of the message here, and I deleted it. The apostates will come under judgment the same way as evil does doers in the past. That's the point of these. Point four, the judgments written about long ago would include these three examples. Uh, Jude opens the judgment in verses five through seven. Jude closes with judgment in verses 14 through 16, quoting Enoch. Uh, the three historical judgments, Israel leaving, we covered that. Point six, all three leave their proper signed sphere. I'm getting ahead right here in the notes. But all three of these are going to be leaving. They've been assigned something. There is a, very interesting, this is so applicable. There's a place. There's a position. There's a creation that they are part of. They have been created by God and placed here. Now, again, I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we all have been. That, like Psalm 2 talks about, let's shake off the, the, the shackles, the chains that the Creator has put on us. Let's, let's shake off this bondage. Well, what kind of bondage has God given us? Well, for example, uh, I am a male. I can't change that. Okay, I know, okay, I know. I can't change that. I, I'm white. Can't change that. Uh, I was born in 1960, not 1860, not 2060. Uh, I was born in the USA. Now, you can move, but you're still born. Ah, I was born with certain genetics. I wish I was, there's a, especially as a child, I wish I was, I wish I was, I wish I was. And all of, for me, all of my adult life is coming back to the fact, no, you're this. 
No, you're not. I wanted to be a base, major league baseball player. No, you're not. I can play some college ball, and you're done. Put your glove away. I don't want, I want to quit. I want to keep playing. You can't. No, they cut you. Okay, I want, okay I'm going to be musical. Okay, yeah, you're going to have very good rhythm. You can't. It's like, but I want to try. I want to work really hard. You, you, no, no. Whatever else I wanted to be. It's like, I'm here. This is who I am. And so, I mean, you could go on making a list of things that just by nature, well, you could add to their gravity. You know, I can't fly. I mean, you, I, whatever. There's just some things that I'm limited to that I am going to have to find God. I'm going to have to honor God. I'm going to have to live in this area that God has destined for me. So that doesn't make me very happy. It makes me feel like a captive. And I think right now, uh, many people in our culture are fighting reality they're fighting all of these things but these examples one of the things if it be the exodus generation the angels or sodom and gomorrah one of the things that's going to become a theme is their place their position their of creation they've all they're all like not good enough they're rebelling against it and it's like gotta let it go so far and then judgment is, it's like, you can't. Which kind of, when we look, if you want to make an application to our culture today, wh- what we see in our culture, people trying to fight against reality, it's like, what a modern concept. It's like, that's, that's the, creature, the creature that was created by God it, 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 as he begins to experience the creation and the limits. It's like, I don't want to be limited. It's like, you are. I created you this way. I've got this body. You know, I've got this face. I've got this time. It's like, yeah, I want something different. You don't get it. This is you. And you're going to have to find the creator and exploit what he's given you to glorify him. You're you're stuck. That's that's the, if you're, well, it's going to call them grumblers. You're a grumbler. I don't want to be this tall. I don't want to be this color. I don't want to be at this place. You're, You're not glorifying God. You're trying to change everything. And you're heading towards destruction. Okay. So that's that point right there. Um, Where am I point at? Oh, point six. All three of these leave their proper assigned sphere established by God's boundaries and and reap judgment. They are not listed historical order. uh, And that's just a fact. I'm not sure if that means anything. It goes Israel, back to the angels, and Sodom. Verse eight. Oh, this is worth looking at, because did you notice, uh, <coughs> let me see what I got the, here in the NIV. Oh, yeah. Verse 5 in the NIV, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that, notice this, the Lord, NIV, delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed them. And there is a footnote there in the NIV, yes. The footnote says some early manuscripts instead of Lord is Jesus. Now, you don't have to accept anything I say. You don't, you don't have to accept anything I say. But I'm saying, based on textual evidence, interpretation, Jude wrote Jesus. Jude wrote, as you see on page one of your notes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew this, that Jesus, 
who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, this is not a big deal, but yet it is. Because uh, as I go through this, let me read some notes to you. Yes, point eight on page two. Uh, here, Jesus' translation has the strong support in the ancient manuscripts. In fact, the NIV has Lord, but then it switches and says, the footnote says, the earliest manuscripts have Jesus. Now you're into textual criticism. Now listen, there's textual criticism, then there's higher textual criticism. Textual criticism, oh boy, are you guys okay? Okay, okay. <laughs> textual criticism is the idea that, and it's shocking. I mean, I remember the moment when I found out there's not the Bible in Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus didn't like leave a Bible. It's like, it's like, well, can't we just go to the Bible that God gave Peter? It's like, no, there's no Bible. There's letters. There's manuscripts. In fact, there's not even the original copy of any of the letters that the apostles wrote. It's like, now right here, this, you have to go through this tunnel. You, you, at some point in your Christian faith, if you're going to be, you're going to mature at all, and you're going to live in a modern culture, you have to go through this, this tunnel of, there's no Bible in Jerusalem. Where does the Bible come from? Zondervan. It's like, Zondervan? It's like, what? That's exactly what Zondervan did in 1978. was like they thought, we want the, the, the meeting, Zondervan. We want to outsell the King James Bible in the next few years. Let's write, let's have a new translation. Do you guys, anybody have an NIV Bible with them today? I have because I got stuck with it because it's what I first got. And I, 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 use, I like English. Okay, boy, no. If you go into here in the early pages, um, it's going to tell you who the translators are. Uh, yes, yes, right here, contributors. And if you go through here, the Genesis by Youngblood, uh, and then uh, Exodus by Kaiser, Youngblood, and Leviticus by Harris, Numbers by Allen. If you look at Judges, John J. Davis, brethren, the Grace Brethren from uh, uh, Indi- Winona Lake. He preached at my church one time in, uh, when I was a, a, a brethren preacher. I had a, a brethren church I pastored for seven years. John J. Davis, he was a Hebrew scholar. But what these guys all are in Zondervan, they're all from different denominations. He was a Grace Brethren. All, it doesn't list their denominations. But when they got, come out, it's like, here's the NIV Bible. We've got a new translations. Oh, there's a Catholic translator. There's a Reformed translator. There's a oh, Methodist. There's everybody is here. It's like, and the Grace Brother. They're like, well, we don't, ex- oh, Brother John. Well, bless God. Let's get copies in all the churches. In 1978, and by 1981, NIV is outselling the King James because of marketing by Zonervan. It was, it was a plan. Now, uh, I, I'm not being critical of the NIV. I will, in a sense, in 1978, 1980, the, the translations were, uh, okay, you, 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 the translation would be word for word, which you would not understand because you've got to have some kind of English grammar. So you're going to take word for word and then you're going to kind of morph them into a little bit of a grammar, but now you're going to have to change things and then you end up having just some kind of a, a, uh, a paraphrase. Here's what it says. Okay, well, basically what it means is this. 
And that base becomes a teaching tool. It just becomes teaching. We want to have somewhere in here where it's not word for word. We do that with the, the text box. But then you move into this area right here where it's kind of word for word, but it evens things out so you can read it in English and understand it. It's a translation, but it's not a, a teaching tool, not a, not a paraphrase. The NIV went just a little bit this way. They went from being not word for word, they translated it, but like a New American Standard or the English Standard Version, it leaves it word for word as much as it can and just moves around the word so you can make an English sentence out of it. The NIV went, ah, oh, let's go a little bit further, and they paraphrased a few things. Instead of leaving the word there, it's like, well, you're going to have to have some Bible understanding to understand, so let's just explain it for you, which is fine, especially if you're, it's written at a fifth grade level, that's, so that's perfect for me. Okay, and then you can get into the paraphrase of where, you know, you get, I don't know, message Bible and that good news for modern man. So, okay, now as time went on, eventually the NIV realized they got to keep up with culture if they're going to keep their marketing plan going. So they got rid of all the pronouns because all they realized that uh, the Bible has a lot of he, 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 he. And so they changed that to them, 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 them so that the women completely felt ostracized uh, by the Bible translation. And so they, you, you're going to find the, the pronouns are changing, not, the, not for transgender reasons. That's still coming. Um, but uh, anyway, that's the NIV. Now, why am I saying that? Ah, okay, I'm going down the tunnel. <laughs> okay, so where's this Bible at? And so what you're going to have is, People copied the Bible. There's going to be copies of Paul's letters. The churches would keep it. And, of course, you can't have, like, in Corinth. They're not going to have all the letters. They're going to have the letters of Paul from the, to the Corinthians and maybe a few others. And they were going to exchange them. And eventually people started collecting them, or they began to copy them and pass them around. Well, in the process of copying them, they're going to make mistakes. In fact, uh, the printing of the King James Bible, for example, there's a couple of Bibles. One's known as uh, the Wicked Bible because it talks about uh, in the Ten Commandments, they forgot the word in the printing press. The printing press, they forgot the word not in adultery. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, whoa, <laughs> how many did we print? <laughs> you know, and so and it's called the Wicked Bible, because thou shalt commit adultery. It's like, oh my gosh. And so it's like, whoa, 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 what's that? That's a typo. That's a mistake. And so to say, though, that God protects the Bible, never, it's like, Oh, now you're into, okay, God is overseeing his word, but is it possible that a scribe misplaced the word or skipped a line? Exactly, we, we can see it. It's like, okay, well, wait, there's a whole line missing here. Or these words are reversed, or the letters are reversed, or a letter is skipped, or he, the word is here and here, and he saw the word here, came back to the text, saw it here, and skipped this entire paragraph because he, those are all errors, and they can see, and they, textual criticism is like, well, why is this verse not in this, this manuscript? Oh, he made a mistake. He skipped it. Or, uh, in this case, one thing that happens is you see how hard that all the, the, the Septuagint, uh, the, the, the uh, Masoretic text, the Hebrew, they do not say Jesus delivered the people out of Exodus or out of Egypt. It's God or the Lord. And so Jude writes Jesus, apparently. Okay, this is a little, okay, if we're going to keep this, people are starting to ask a lot of questions. That's not really, the, where does it say that Jesus, it's, it says the Lord. And so they're going to switch it 
They're going to take the rougher reading, the harsher reading, the harder reading, and switch it to the Lord or switch it to God. And now you're going to see the later manuscripts, this, it's like everyone raised their hand, why, what, Jesus in the old, what, what, Jesus wasn't there, he wasn't born, uh, it's the Lord, forget this, that's not the point. And so they would change this to the Lord. And then you see this throughout, all the way through, expect again, boy, now you get into uh, the Textus Receptus, the King James translation, the Byzantine text, by the time you get to 1000 AD, all the manuscripts from that time have been, how do you say that word, liturgized? You, you know, there, you, there, there's literature, you know, like, like they'd read it in church, and so they, they also, it's like at the closing of the Lord's Prayer, there's a closing, your kingdom and power forever and ever, amen. Uh, if you go back to the early manuscripts, it doesn't have that nice, cool ending, it just uses pray like this. And walked away and it's like are we going to say amen it's like well in the by 1000 a.d that's in the manuscripts but you go back to 600 a.d 300 a.d it's just the the prayer and no kingdom and power and glory forever and ever amen that's not there well what happened well not to be a heretic not to be an apostate they just like just to smooth this up a little bit. They're not, they weren't being wrong. And the same thing, they would, you see that later manuscripts have, now here's the question for you, right? Here's the question. The earlier manuscripts, or some manuscripts, it's earlier, but let's just say some manuscripts have switched Lord or God to Jesus. Or, was Jesus switched to Lord and God? Now, historically, the older, the early, NIV has right in the footnotes, the earlier manuscripts have Jesus, but then somewhere it became Lord and God. So the textual evidence shows it was originally Jesus. But as far as going from the harder reading to smoothing it out, if you're going to go through the Crusades and the, and the Middle Ages, are you going to leave Jesus there, or are you going to just coordinate it with the Old Testament and say, lord or god and so the the critics would say the textual critics not the higher critics the higher critics are just destroying the bible totally they would say it's more likely that jude wrote jesus and then as people copied it's like oh that's hard to explain and they switched it to lord or they switched it to god it's very hard to understand why it was originally written lord and then the scribes will say you know what let's write jesus right there that's just a very difficult thing to swallow that scribes would switch Lord and then write Jesus' name there, especially when there's, there's no support for it. There's no support that Jesus was ever in Egypt in that sense. Does that make sense at all? Now, that's a big deal. That's a big deal because it shows us in the first century, I'm going to say 55 AD, that Jude says Jesus delivered the people out of Egypt, but Jesus also had had enough of them, and destroyed them. And this same Jesus is the one who's overseeing the church that's been infiltrated with apostates, and it's been written about long ago, written beforehand. This is what Jesus did. He delivered them. He, in fact, the word is, saved them, but later destroyed them. And now the church, you need to take warning. There's apostates among you, and they may have been, in a sense, saved or they've come to the saved but if they're not gonna have faith if they're not gonna hold to the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints they're gonna change the great they're gonna get destroyed in fact james or jude is in a sense guaranteeing 
their instructions. Here we go. Point D, 8D on page 2. Here's some other places, if you'll allow this, and I've got to wrap this up, my gosh. Uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, writes, talking about them water being provided for the people of it, at the Exodus, he says, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's like, whoa, now where in the Bible do you find a rock rolling around behind them? You've got to get into the Jewish, uh, the, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the teachings that they're the, the, the Messiah the Lord would follow them in a rock. Whenever they needed water, Moses would either strike the rock or was supposed to speak to the rock, but the rock was always there. And Paul says that rock, that was Christ. When, when they had water, that was Christ manifesting. Now, I'm, just, I'm just telling you what it says there. Um, in John 8:56, you know this verse. Uh, Our father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And that's when uh, the, 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 the religious leaders are saying, uh, you're not of God. And he says, no, he says, you're just like your father, the devil. They says, our father is not the devil. Our father is God. He says, or our father is Abraham. He says, he, says, if, if, he says, I saw Abraham's day and he rejoiced. And they, they understood him to say, they said, you're not yet 50 years old and yet you say you've seen Abraham. And Jesus says, uh, he agrees, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And so, very clearly, I remember as a kid in a Methodist church, the pastor saying, there's no place in the Bible that Jesus clearly says that he's the Son of God. It's like, we don't need to take that serious. Jesus was just a good example. And it's like, as a, as a young teenager, 12, 13 years old, I'm not like ready to like, wait a minute. Uh, but it's pretty clear right here. They, they, they says, you're not yet 50 years old. You can't have seen Abraham. And Jesus says, well, yeah, I did. Because before Abraham was... I am. Before Abraham was in existence, I was eternally existing. And so there, <clears throat> there's Jesus saying he was in Abraham's day. Uh, John 12, 39 through 43, uh, it, it's an example of, in both these cases, of uh, Isaiah referring to the people of his day seeing Jesus or seeing Christ's glory. And John picking up on it. So John 12, 39 through 43, therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. And I, I right here, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the, oh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, I didn't write that. John wrote that. So gosh, and my quote ended right there. So that, that was him quoting Isaiah. I'm still quoting John. And he says that Isaiah says this, John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the, even the authorities believed in him, but uh, even the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they would not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Uh, I get to go on Isaiah 6, Philippians uh, talks about you know, every eye will see and worship God and bow their knee. It's all connected to Jesus. It's referred to in the Old Testament that it happens with God. New Testament, they're saying it's Jesus. So nonetheless, that's not unusual. Uh, and First Enoch 69 says, the Son of Man was sitting in judgment over the bound angels. All right. Uh, 
what else we got here? Those never knew were going to. Okay, let's look very quickly and get started on this. Uh, Jude 6. And this is, again, we're not going to get, this is not even fair. A, a good speaker would stop right now, but that's not me. I still see four minutes of class time left as a teacher, and so I'm going to use it. <laughs> Jude 6. The second example, which again is going to, uh, you, you want to approach this with some questions <coughs> and not just assume some things. Uh, if, if, if I support it or if I don't, you want to let this teach you, explain itself. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there are angels somewhere that left their place. They left their proper place. And because they left their proper place, they're now kept in gloomy, dark dungeons, chains. So again, these angels were created to be bearers of light. They're created to be in the heavenly realms. They're created to be, if you want to say, in the heavens the sky, whatever, out and about. They left their place to go where they wanted to go. And now, which is scary, I mean, if, if you let this just meditate on this, for me at least, they're created for light, the universe, expanse. They're now in gloomy dungeons, chained, and they're waiting. They're not, they're waiting for judgment. They're, they're, the day of judgment, the great day of judgment is coming. But instead of existing in glory, in light, in God's presence, in this spacious universe, heavenly atmosphere, they're locked in gloomy dungeons, in chains. In, I mean, the very creatures that were designed for light are in darkness. The very ones that are the expanse are in chains. It, it's it's got to be a horrific experience for them. And so, it says, and the angels who did not stay in their own positions of authority... Uh, authority that would be god had placed them with some responsibility that they were created for a reason i would think we are created with some authority we're here for a reason uh you know as a father i have authority as a husband i've got authority as a bible teacher i've got authority that authority doesn't mean i'm in charge as much as it is i'm responsible as a father i'm responsible i'm responsible as a bible i've got these things to take care of and to neglect my family my wife the bible to go do something else it's like you've left your assigned authority they had a place they're created for this they fit they're the puzzle piece that fit and the angels decided to leave and go somewhere else they were themselves in a, the the the, the her, heretic can be called grumblers they were in a sense grumblers they didn't want to be well, they, well now you just throw this over our, our culture and we got people not wanting to be male or or female or black or white or whatever they they, they want to be something else it's like they're grumblers it's like there's there's a place of finding god and finding his purpose for your existence and embracing it instead of being a grumbler and rebelling against god these angels did uh they left their proper place of dwelling now point one uh i've got first of all in the greek text there and we're going to come back to this next week uh, if you read through the Greek text, I'll just read the English in the Greek text, and I want you to notice, the angels both not having kept, right there, I've underlined, 
having kept. And that's underlined because if you look at the very last word of the Greek box, he keeps. Since they would not keep, they would not keep their place, he now keeps them somewhere else. That's, that's, they, left, they did not keep it, he's keeping them. So if you, it's one of those things, if you want God to keep you, you keep in God's place, God will keep you, you're there. You don't want to keep your place, God's going to keep you somewhere else for judgment. Uh, and also in the box is the word domain and the word dwelling, and then I circled the great day. Now what we've got here, and I'll sum this up very quickly, we'll come back next week and read Genesis 6, but... All these references right here, and I'll probably by the time I have another week to work on it, have more. But the idea here is the majority of the Jewish writing at that time, from Josephus to the rabbis, from the book of Enoch to all the literature, these angels were from Genesis chapter 6 that left their place and became flesh. They, they wanted to become flesh. They didn't want to live in the heavens. They wanted to live on the earth and partake of fleshly things, including food and and the environment, and particularly the women. And they wanted to create their own. They realized men are creating their own people. You're creating your own people. It's like if we take on flesh, we and they produce their own sons. Now, you say, well, the Bible says, Jesus said that the, when we die, we'll be like the angels in heaven, neither the giving in marriage. Or, it's like, right, because marriage is an institution of this age. In eternity, there's no marriage. It doesn't mean there's, the, the angels can't take on flesh. Because, oh boy, now I, I got to stop. Because when the angels ever appeared to Abram, they would eat food. Or when they would come into Peter, they would strike and touch Peter. It, it's like they took on flesh. Now, when they, they would eat, they didn't like just pretend to be eating. They would actually have flesh. They were called men. The men of Sodom saw them as men. Uh, but the idea was they would take on flesh temporarily for service. God makes his angels winds of fire or flames, winds or flames. These angels wanted to join the physical realm and produce children by them. Now, the overwhelming Jewish writings explain it in gory detail of what they, just like always, there's a placeholder. God buried Moses. Well, what else happened? Well, the assumption of Moses fills it in. You've got the, the, the table of nations, just the names of a bunch of people, you know, sons of, sons of, they went here, they went here. It's like, but then you go and find those places and you find their mythology and all their legends. It's like, oh, it puts some flesh on all those names. Uh, and the same thing here. You've got this account of Genesis. I want more detail. Well, there's a placeholder. It happened, and it's all filled in. And the thing you say, well, they just made that up, except for the fact that Jude and Peter are going to refer to it as a literal uh, uh, act. And uh, we'll read that a little bit more next week, and I'm going to quit just out of respect for humanity. I thank you for being here. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We ask that we would seriously consider you as our creator and us as a creature that have been placed at a certain time and a certain position and that we would honor you, seek you, and do the things you've called us to do. We know that you'll keep us here as we keep our place that you've assigned to us. And we do ask that we would contend for the faith, that we would not uh, submit or give in to the culture, but we would continue to proclaim the truth, not in rebellion, but in just 
honor to you and to live in the truth that you've called us to. And we do pray for our churches and our society that we may see mercy, that you may call people from darkness into light, and we may see revival in our own time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your time.